Last week, I watched the inauguration ceremony of U.S. President Joe Biden. It was a very American affair, full of pomp and circumstance, some interesting style choices, and a grandiose and generous interpretation of America's role in the world. As you'd expect, President Biden's inauguration address was all about change. He named the challenges that are facing the country, pandemic, climate crisis, economic inequality, racial injustice, political extremism, and division. He pointed back to other ch great challenges of American history, reminding his fellow citizens that struggle and division are not new. He offered his vision for overcoming the present crisis, healing, unity, honesty, strength, unity, faith, and more unity. And he promised that America will stand, rebuild, come together, overcome, and above all, rise. USA, USA. Sorry. While the contrast between Biden and the last guy was a big relief, Biden's speech really wasn't all that inspiring or unique, in my opinion. Things are hard right now, change is coming, and here's how we're gonna make things better. That's pretty much what the previous president said at his inauguration as well, just framed with different hardships, different enemies, and a very different path forward. And that's basically the same formula as what the president before that said as well, and the one before that, and the one before that. Change is the opportunity to overcome hardship on the path of success. Pretty standard political speech, and actually what we want to hear from our leaders most of the time. In times like these, we want reassurance that it's going to get better. A new day will come we shall overcome. That's the kind of hope we need right now. And so it's quite striking when Jesus gave his own inauguration speech. In times like these, he went entirely in the opposite direction. The Sermon on the Mount, we call it, from chapter five of the Gospel of Matthew. To this point in the story, Jesus had been walking around the region of Galilee, drawing on the movement started by his cousin, John, gaining a whole bunch of attention for his miraculous faith healings. As Matthew writes, great crowds followed Jesus from all around. The fact that there were great crowds with nothing better to do than follow a traveling faith healer says a lot about the socio-political economic situation. There was significant disease, poverty, discrimination, oppression. You don't walk for days to follow a stranger up a mountain unless you're pretty desperate. And so when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down and the disciples had gathered around, Jesus began to teach them. Sounds casual enough, but this was a capital M mountain. Jesus was following in the footsteps of Moses in the Exodus, the chosen one who went up the mountain and came down with the word of God, the word directly from God, from God's mouth. When Jesus went up the mountain and began to teach, this was the symbolism that this was a sacred moment, a turning point, an inauguration speech. Jesus was gonna lay out the vision for his new regime. That's how it would have been received by those gathered to listen. 
And 40-ish years after that event, the audience to whom Matthew was writing his gospel would have understood it that way as well. It is commonly accepted that Matthew was writing for a community of Greek-speaking Jews living in Antioch, Syria, around the year 70 CE. As I explained a few weeks ago, this was a season of major change for the Jews, unwelcome change. A rebellion in the Jewish homeland of Judah had just been brutally crushed by the Romans. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned and ruined. This was devastating to the Jews spread across the Roman Empire. The Jews in Antioch would have had relatives and friends killed in the siege of Jerusalem. And in the aftermath, they would have been treated with suspicion at best or outright hostility as potential rebels. The Romans didn't mess around with rebellious citizens. The Jews had lost their, their temple, the center of their religious and cultural identity. The Jewish followers of Jesus were beginning to see themselves as something different, but their community and their theology was brand new. It was fragile. They were still Jews, and the temple was still the house of God. And now all that was gone. As I said a few weeks ago, the writer of Matthew first reminded this audience that this was not the end, that the long history of God, the people of God, was filled with these kind of unexpected, unwanted crisis moments. And through it all, God was faithful in bringing a new way out of and beyond the old way. And now, in telling Jesus' story, in this gospel format, Matthew is laying out the vision for this old yet new thing that God was doing. How do we deal with massive, unwanted, traumatic change? By following Jesus up the mountain. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The realm of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are mourning. They will be consoled. Blessed are those who are gentle. They will inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will have their fill. Blessed are those who show mercy to others. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are clean. They will see God. Blessed are those who work for peace. They will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their struggle for justice. The realm of heaven is theirs. Famous words, so much that we might have trouble hearing them because they've been covered with multiple layers of meaning over the ages. So if you can, imagine what it might have been like to hear this for the first time as part of the Jewish community in Antioch. Blessed are those who are spent, desperate, whose spirit has run out. Blessed are those who are grieving, those who must hold back their strength, those who must stay quiet and play nice. Blessed are those who long for justice, those who have pity, those who didn't deserve this, those who keep the peace, those who have been abused for their faith. It seems to me that this would have sounded very familiar to the Jewish Christians of Antioch. Desperate, grieving, keeping our heads down while we long for justice and peace. 
mistreated and abused because of our religious identity. This is us now. It feels like Jesus is giving a list of the troubles facing his followers, the stuff that they're already going through, their fears of what was coming in the aftermath of the crisis. That's a pretty common rhetorical tactic, really. This is what Biden did in listing the challenges facing the states last week. Pandemic, climate crisis, racial division, economic struggles. I see you. I feel your pain. I know what you're up against. As I said, we, we like leaders who hear us and feel our pain. As Jesus named what they were going through, he had the crowd with him in Antioch and on that mountainside in Galilee. We are down and he sees us where we are. Ah, and now comes the part where he lifts us up, points us to a brighter future, challenges us to rise. Except that's not what Jesus is up to. Where most leaders describe change as this upward trajectory, an opportunity to look up and rise up, Jesus turns that arrow around. Blessed are you, the ones who despair, for yours is the kingdom of the heavens. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Let's start with blessed. I have to say I don't really like that word, and not just because of the hashtag. It reminds me of an inside joke in my family. Back in her service adventure days, Carrie was a, a teaching assistant in a kindergarten class at a Christian school. And one day she made an offhand comment to one of the students, um, something good had happened to them, and she said, oh wow, you're such a lucky duck. One of the other kindergartners overheard and corrected her, no, Miss Carrie, he's a fortunate duck. Somewhere that student had gotten the message that, message that luck wasn't a good word. I assume that their parents had told them that Christians should give, give credit to God and not to random luck or superstition. And I get that concept, trying to instill gratitude, but changing the word doesn't really help. The common use of blessed has an element of fortunate in it. Lucky, auspicious, charmed, or maybe favored, chosen for something special, you're blessed. The Greek word here doesn't seem to have that good fortune element to it. It's tough to translate into English, but I don't think that Jesus is saying that these people are lucky or that they've been particularly selected for their benefits, for these benefits that come with having their spirits broken. Some translators use the word happy, but again, that has that happy-go-lucky, breezy, pleasure feeling, and that's not quite right either. I think the meaning here goes a bit deeper than that. It's less of a feeling, more of a statement about status and condition. You are sacred. You have God's attention and approval, not over or against anyone else, but just as you are. You're in the right place. It's okay. You're still good. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. That's blessed. The Jewish followers of Jesus after the destruction of Jerusalem did not feel good. They felt shaken, abandoned, punished, scared. This change had cost them a lot, even from a distance. They were outsiders now. They had lost all the things they associated with God's favor, prosperity, security, the tangible benefits of homeland and temple. And yet, Jesus said, you're still good. 
Your status hasn't changed. You're still people of God. It's okay to be broken, poor in spirit. You still have that which matters most. That which matters most in the Gospel of Matthew is named the kingdom of the heavens. In other Gospels, the same concept is named the kingdom of God. The inclusive Bible translation uses the word kingdom because God as ruler is not gendered like a king or queen. And because the idea of kinship captures the relational tribal family nature of the realm of God in a way that our modern political understanding of a kingdom or a nation does not. But don't miss that the first century Jews would definitely have understood this as a political reality, not just a spiritual one. They had just lost a literal kingdom to the conquering emperor. Their status politically in the Roman Empire was shaken. The security of their kingdom citizenship had been lost. And to that, Jesus says, the true nation of God, what it is to be the people of God, that is still yours, even when your spirit is empty. The heart of that kingdom, what really matters that remains. You still belong. You still have the true homeland. And not someday, but now. Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom. Already, now, even though you are poor in spirit, the heart of the kingdom is already yours. You people in the crowd, longing for healing, desperate for sustenance, and security, dreaming of revolution and a better way. Yours is the kingdom now. You Jews in Antioch, beaten down, grieving, afraid, numb from the suffering and death, you are blessed already. Here at the bottom, you are blessed. That's a pretty powerful invocation to remind people who are in crisis that God is with them where they are, that God is meeting them right there at the bottom. Imagine if that had been Biden's campaign speech. I see the challenges, I feel your pain, and let me tell you, you are blessed. You're good. Everything you really need, you already have. It would have taken a lot less time to count the votes if that had been the message from a presidential campaign. And yet, that is the way of Jesus. Not change as opportunity for success, but change as opportunity to embrace hardship, to find God with us at the bottom. Because God is already here in the midst of what feels like defeat. Now, you particularly observant folks have already noticed that Jesus' speech does talk about a better future of comfort, of the security of the homeland, of nourishment, justice, mercy, assurance, even recognition and praise. Those are all in the future tense, the promises of what will come as they embrace this fresh understanding of the realm of God. There's a tension there, the already of the blessing and the future promise of comfort, nourishment, and reward. That's still different than a vote for me is a vote for a brighter tomorrow. The path Jesus offers is not rising above the hardship, but settling into it, finding good 
in it. To put it plainly, I don't think Jesus is promising the crowd on the mountainside that he would make their lives better. He's not offering to end their pain and give them security. He's telling them that as they walk through the hardships of their individual and collective lives, he will walk with them. God will walk with them. The Christ will be with them on the bottom. The writer of Matthew's gospel was not assuring the Jews in Antioch that God would end their struggle. If they endure a little longer, God would return them to the temple. God would give them back the homeland and the identity that they had lost. I think the assurance is that this is hard. Change is hard. Things might not get better in their lifetimes, but God is still with them there on the bottom. Even if the worst case scenario comes, they are not separated from God. Whether their lot in life changes or not, they will find the blessing of God. When you embrace the reign of God in the present, even at the bottom, this is what you will find. Comfort, kindness, sustenance, meaning and purpose and belonging. Perhaps that's harder to believe than not to. But this isn't pie-in-the-sky religion. It's not magical thinking or superstition. The things that matter most, lives filled with meaning, purpose, and belonging, those are largely independent of the situation you find yourself in. Or so I've heard. I haven't been through much actual suffering in my life. Hashtag blessed. But this isn't my wisdom. You don't have to take my word for it. This is the wisdom of centuries of human experience, as proclaimed by generations of Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and pagans and skeptics and mystics of all shapes and sizes. Most of it from people who have lived on the bottom, have lived in the worst this world has to offer. There is more to this life than what is happening to you and around you. There is always blessing, goodness, redemption for those who seek it. There is always meaning, purpose, and belonging enough, even when you're at the bottom and powerless to change your circumstances. Blessed are those who suffer in their struggle for shalom. The realm of God is theirs. Now that doesn't mean that we don't work to end suffering especially those of us with power and resources. It doesn't mean that we don't work for justice, that we don't push back against evil. Of course we do. The hope of the realm of God is shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. Those who can work towards that do. And certainly it doesn't mean that we seek out suffering, that God is only found on the bottom. This isn't masochism, though some religious folks do take it to that extreme. The point is not to pursue pain, but to accept that pain is not the opposite of the realm of God. Divinity includes and goes beyond suffering. That's what Jesus lived. If you're too invested in trying to avoid the suffering, you're gonna miss the blessing. And so Jesus says to those on the bottom, blessed are you, even though others insult you and harass you and slander you for your faith. Cheers to you, even much joy, 
you will have your reward. Even the prophets before you were oppressed. Again, that's not much reassurance if you're looking for relief and a brighter tomorrow. The Jewish ancestors, honored as they were, did not exactly live in happily ever after land. The blessing of the prophets came in their faithfulness to the journey, not in arriving at the destination. And so Jesus ends this section of his speech with two famous metaphors, calling his followers to the day-to-day integrity of living as the people of God in the middle of the realities of life. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt, seasoning, and light from a lamp. Both of these were a lot more difficult to come by back then than they are now. And still, in spite of their relative scarcity, both of these are instruments meant to be used. If you keep the seasoning on the shelf, it's not very effective. If you try to protect your light, it won't bring radiance. In the same way, you are to live where you are, in the time you find yourself in, to get into the mix, to bring flavor and illumination to the world as it is. In this way, you will bring attention and honor to your God. This will connect you with the source of life. The evidence, the fulfillment of the blessing comes in the moment, in the living day by day, moment by moment. That's the way of Jesus, not the onwards and upwards pursuit of success, not climbing the path of change out of the struggle towards a brighter tomorrow, but living the presence of God already right here in the middle of the struggle through the faithful daily work of salt and light. And so it is with us. You too are salt and light in your particular kingdom. Even when your spirit is bankrupt and you long for peace and justice that never seem to come. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. May you know the blessing of Christ with you now and always, world without end. Amen.